We're going to be in the Ten Commandments for the next three months. And I just thought it would make sense to start the series by getting the obvious out of the way. I'm well aware that many of you are picturing Charlton Heston right now. I'm also aware that some of you are quietly laughing to yourself about Mel Brooks dropping the third tap of the law. Wherever you fall on that spectrum, I lean towards Mel Brooks. The reality of both the Exodus event and God's giving of the law is something that is just as relevant for us today as it was to Israel as they made their way through the wilderness over 3,000 years ago. As we'll see in just a few minutes, these two events will serve to define God's people throughout the course of the Old Testament in the same way the church is defined by the cross, the resurrection, and the teachings of Jesus found throughout the pages of the New Testament. In fact, and we'll see this as we make our way through the commandments over the next three months, these two events were signs that pointed forward. Forward to a day when the promises of God would be fulfilled and the word of salvation would extend beyond the borders of Israel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so what we first need to do when we're looking at the Ten Commandments is we need to deal with the context in which they were given and received. And so that we'll have to rewind a little bit. Back in Genesis 12, a man named Abram, with his wife Sarah, was called by God and he was promised something. He was told to leave everything he knew behind. And then God said to him this, he said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so skipping over a lot of Old Testament history, God begins to fulfill that promise by giving Abram, who is now Abraham, a son whose name is Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and they gave birth to both Esau and Jacob. And it is Jacob, the second born, who ends up being the heir to this promise. He's given a new name, Israel. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons is Joseph. Now, Joseph is an interesting character, and it is his story that links the book of Genesis with the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Joseph has some dreams. They anger his brothers. He's also Jacob's favorite, which is probably something they should have dealt with. We're not dealing with all-stars in this particular family right now. Because Joseph's brothers hate him, they sell him into slavery. Normal childhood events. He ends up in Egypt. Joseph remains faithful. He rises to one of the highest positions in all of Egypt. At around this time, there's a famine in the land. And the only place to find food is in Egypt. So Joseph's brothers head to Egypt to find food. And they end up remaining there, rescued by Joseph. And it says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, if you don't know how the story goes, as the years went on, Joseph's reputation in Egypt was forgotten. An Israelite population, the, the Israelite population caused the Pharaoh at that particular time some concern, so much so that he placed heavy burdens on the people, enslaving them, trying to kill their newborn sons. The people of promise, the covenant people of God, who had become this great nation, were terrified. 
And it says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, that Israel cried out for help and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now to fast forward quite a bit, the way God remembered the covenant he made with Abraham was by rescuing his people from slavery and providing them with the expectations of that covenant. He remembers his covenant by rescuing them and providing them with a path. By rescuing them and providing them with a path. That path being the Ten Commandments. There's one scholar who refers to the Ten Commandments as rules for the liberated life. As rules for the liberated life. I love that. If you were here last week, we talked a lot about how the law of God provides a pathway of freedom, enabling God's people to become what they were always intended to be. Old Testament scholar Carmen Joy Imes wrote a book called Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. I highly recommend that book. If you're a reader, you should definitely read that book. It's really good. And she says that true freedom requires clearly communicated boundaries, and Israel's laws are the boundaries within which life can flourish. Clearly communicated boundaries. To quote last Sunday's sermon, freedom is best expressed not so much in doing whatever we want, but rather in becoming what we have always been intended to be. Not doing what we want, but becoming what we have always been intended to be. I told you last week that I was giving you a sneak preview, and very much so. We talked a lot about this stuff last week. Another scholar, Peter Lightheart, and I slide for this, he says this. He says, a community dominated by disrespect for parents, workaholism, violence, envy, theft, and lies isn't free. Besides, absolute freedom is impossible. In the world God made, the world that actually exists, Things aren't free. Things aren't free to do or be anything they please. They're free when they become what they are. An acorn is free to become an oak, not an elephant. The ten words guide Israel to grow up to be what he is, the son who rules in his father's house. That same scholar says this. He says, Yahweh will have a son who conforms to the ten words. The father does have such a son, the eternal son, who became Israel to be and do what Israel failed to be and do. The ten words are a character portrait of Jesus, the son of God. He is the heart and soul of the Decalogue, which is another word for ten commandments. The first use of the law is the Christological use of the law. In other words, the ten commandments are about Christ. Ten Commandments are about Christ. They were fulfilled by him, and the spirit-filled faithfulness he embodied throughout his life, he now gives to us that we too might travel the same path of freedom, submitting to these rules for the liberated life, becoming what we were always intended to be. My hope for this series is that we would be challenged in our understanding of what it means to walk in a covenant relationship with our God. And that we would not see the thou shalt nots of God's law as restrictive, but as pathways to freedom that when linked out in faith through the power of the Holy Spirit, we experience God and we show the world just what he is like. A few things before we jump into our text. 
There are multiple versions of the Ten Commandments. Not in the text itself, but in the numbering. If you grew up Roman Catholic or Lutheran, you memorized a slightly different numbering. There's also a Jewish numbering that is slightly different, and then there's the numbering that is most common in Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, and Reform circles, which is the structure that we will be following. The commandments also show up in two different places within the first five books of the Bible. They first show up in Exodus when they're given by God on Mount Sinai, and then they show up in Deuteronomy as the people are about to enter into the land on the plains of Moab. They're basically the same. There's a few minor differences, and we'll look at them as they come up. And finally, you might hear some different words used to describe the commandments. Technically, they're never referred to as commandments in the scripture, but as the ten words. You might hear the word Decalogue, which simply comes from the Greek name for the Ten Commandments. So I might use those interchangeably. I figured I'd get out ahead of it so you guys know just what I'm talking about. It's the switching of pages. That's what's hard with the mic. It's, it's very difficult to switch pages. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn me to Exodus 19. And so it's been about three months since Israel was brought out of Egypt. Since the parting of the Red Sea, and they're now in the wilderness, camping out in front of Mount Sinai. Let me read through verses 3 through 9. It says this. It says, While Moses went up, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded them. And the, and the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people back to the Lord. So a couple of things. God reminds Israel of how he rescued them. He's telling the story of their redemption. This is important. Right? This whole entire, this whole entire um, Leading up to the Ten Commandments. What Moses is doing, what God is doing through Moses, and God is actually doing with his own voice in this particular scene, is he's reminding the people of who he is and what he's done for them. Of who he is and what he's done to them. He's basically preaching the gospel to them. This is the good news of the Old Testament, that you were rescued from slavery and brought into freedom. That's the good news of the Old Testament. Right? When we talk about preaching the gospel, we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, but it's the Exodus story. This parting of the Red Seas, this escaping from slavery by the power of God that served as the gospel story of the Old Testament. It's what, it's what all of the Israelites leaned on as their hope. And then he refers to them where he actually says, if you do a couple of things, if you, if you honor me, if you live by my covenant, then you will become my treasured possession. He tells them that they will become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. In other words, God wants them to know that he saved them, he loves them, and he wants to shape them into a people that will reflect that same love to the world around them. He saved them, he loves them, and he wants to reshape them. That's important. And Israel's response, they're all in. They're all in. All that the Lord has spoken, 
we will do. Even in reading those words and knowing the rest of the story and knowing how Israel responds throughout the course of the Old Testament, I'm reminded of Peter, where Peter's just like, yeah, I'm all in. And then like he does a bunch of stupid stuff, right? It's like, it's, this is Israel. Israel's like, yeah, we're in, absolutely, 100%, never turning back. And then they turn back constantly. And it's the same thing Peter does. And let's be honest, it's the same thing we do. We're constantly wrestling with this. We're constantly knowing what we ought to do, but doing the very things we know we should not do. It's, it's the story of our lives. And we see the story of our lives in the story of Israel. And so what ends up happening is that Moses shares all this info with God. And God then plans to move nearer to both Moses and the people so that they might hear. And he speaks this way for the purpose of giving Moses some credibility, as we'll see in a few minutes. But then a couple of things happen a little bit later on. They need to be consecrated. I'm not going to read through all these texts, but, but basically, God is like, yeah, I'm going to come down and meet with the people, I'm going to meet with you, but they need three days to, to get themselves together. Right? Three days, they got to they gotta wash, they have to make sure that they're pure, they have to make sure all these things. And the point, really, that we're dealing with is that, is that when we approach God, we don't approach God frivolously. We don't approach God sort of like in, in a haphazard way. God knows who he is, and in fact, what he's doing, he's protecting them. He's like, you guys need to consecrate yourselves because I'm going to be here in three days. I'm going to be here in three days, so you need to, to get it together, make yourselves holy, Take what's common and, and make it pure so that it can be used for something sacred and get that done. You have three days. And he gives all these rules. He says you can't come near me. You can't come mountain near the mountain. You can't touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you're going to die because I'm going to tell the people to stone you or shoot arrows at you. And they're not going to touch you because if they touch you, then they're going to be unclean and we're going to have to kill them. And we're probably sitting here thinking, it's like, wow, God, you're insane. Why are you killing people? What's going on? But in reality... God is protecting his people by setting up these boundaries, by setting up these standards. And so let's read verses 16 through 25. The day arrives. It says on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people. And he told him. And so God, as we read through that passage, a couple things. He has clearly demonstrated his power. First, by rescuing them from Egypt. And now he is once again making it clear to them who he is. 
And see, the major point of Exodus 19 is to give us a view into who God is. He is an all-powerful and unapproachable God who must accommodate himself in order to be known. His desire is, however, for his treasured possession to know him and to walk with him. So he goes through great lengths to make it happen. Notice he says like three times, Moses, make sure they don't come. Make sure they don't break through. And it's almost like as I'm reading this text over the week, it's like Moses is like, yeah, yeah, God, I, I talked to them already. I told them. He's like, yeah, but did you? Did you really let them know that if they break through, they're going to die? Like, I'm not playing games. God wants them to understand. He wants them to live is basically what we're drawing from this text. He wants them to live. He does not want them to die. He wants them to become the thing that he created them to be. And so he's warning Moses. He's like, do not mess this up. Do not mess this up. But as we look at this passage, it's more than a glimpse into the power and glory of God. It's more than that. We need to remember that Israel was enslaved for many years. For many years. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, he argues that in slavery, they were molded their life, their environment, their choices to serve the Egyptian empire and its gods. And so when Yahweh redeems the people, he takes them out into the middle of nowhere where they have no land and no social identity. He's remaking the people. He's remaking the people. And this remaking process begins at the foot of Mount Sinai. You are no longer slaves. I have freed you. Let me teach you how to be free. Let me teach you how to be free. That's the crux of the entire Ten Commandments, of the entire law of God. They are free, but they don't know how to live freely. It's, it's, I'm, I'm reminded of stories I've heard of, of people who have, have been in prison for years, for years, and then they come out and, and they have to relearn how to acclimate to society. And I've never been in the military, Pete, but I imagine when you came out of the military, after however many years you were in there, you had to relearn how to live in this world. It's different. And so there's this sense where they lived as slaves for so many years, they didn't understand what freedom even meant. And we know this because they're constantly saying, can we go back? Can we go back? We were well fed there. We were taken care of. Like they're, they're, so, they're so marked by their slavery that they don't recognize how bad they had. They don't recognize how horrific of an environment it was that they want to go back. They need to relearn how to be human, basically. They need to learn how to be free. They need to learn how to be free. This is what this whole thing is all about. It's where the entire story is driving. God saves his people. And then he teaches them how to live in a way that will form and shape them into a kingdom of priests and a holy nation so that the rest of his promises might come true to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. They needed to be a kingdom of priests and they needed to be holy. And the law was the pathway to getting there. They were, they were rescued. They were rescued. And now they need to learn to be free. 
They need to learn to be free so that the world might catch a glimpse of who God is. They were the plan. Israel was the plan to reveal God to the nations. And so they received the law. Forty years go by. And the generation that was rescued from Egypt dies in the wilderness because of their unfaithfulness. They just couldn't figure it out. They couldn't figure it out. And so Moses, who also was not permitted to enter into the promised land because of his own disobedience, he delivers his final word in the book of Deuteronomy. That whole book is basically Moses' last will and testament, if you will. This new generation on the plains of Moab, ready to enter into the land, they need to be reminded. They need to be reminded of who they are. God's treasured possession. The ones who were brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And he reminds them of those ten words, their communal identity, their story, the values that were meant to reshape them and recreate them into the image of God. That's what this whole entire thing is about. That's our story, too. We have been rescued and saved from the clutches of sin and death. From slavery, we have been rescued. But yet, we are still learning how to be free. We're learning how to be free as we submit ourselves to the teachings of Christ, as we submit ourselves to the words of the New Testament, to the words of the Old Testament, as we submit ourselves to the Spirit of God as He, as he, as he challenges us, as He convicts us of sin and, and keeps us on the straight and narrow as we obey Him and keep in step with Him. We're in the same process, but thankfully we, we have the Spirit of God. It's a little bit different for us on this side of the resurrection. But that's what this is all about. See, see, the law was not the way Israel was rescued. That's not the order of events. That's not the order of operations for you math majors out there. No, no, no. They were rescued first. They were rescued first, and then they were given the law. They were rescued first, and then they were given the law. Salvation by grace is what we're seeing in the Old Testament. See, people like to, to mess with the Old Testament and say, well, well, no, they had to uphold the law. And, and they did, in a sense, but that's not what saved them. They were rescued by God's grace. God took the first step toward them and pulled them out of the clutches of slavery while they were in Egypt. And then he said, now go and be free. Here's what freedom looks like. But they loved slavery more. That's us. We love slavery more. A lot of us do. A lot of us do. And that's the fight. That's what we're dealing with in this particular passage. This brings us to our second point here, the prologue. It says this, and God spoke all these words in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's how the Ten Commandments start. They start by God identifying who He is and what He's done. Who He is and what He's done. First thing we need to realize is that these words are spoken directly from God to the people. Directly from God to the people. 
The text seems to suggest that Moses might be down with the people as God is speaking the commandments. This may or may not be the case. There's different opinions on this. But what is important is that the people are able to hear what's going on. They're witnessing this event. But what is most important about the prologue is what God says. The first thing he says, I am the Lord your God. And, and in your Bibles, Lord is all capitals because that is the covenant name of God. That's Yahweh. And he begins with his covenant name, which means he's binding himself to his people. He tells them that I am the Lord, your God. That means I am the, I'm the Lord who belongs to you and you belong to me. In other words, the unapproachable and unknowable God is condescending, coming down to the level of his people so that he might become approachable and knowable. The unknowable and unapproachable God condescends so that he might become knowable and approachable. The second thing he does is that he reminds them again of what he's done for them. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, you know how powerful I am. You've seen what I can do, and you are currently experiencing that power as you witness these tremendous forces of nature descending upon this mountain in the middle of the desert. And while all of that is true, I also want you to know that I love you, and I have demonstrated that love by saving you, by freeing you from slavery, and now I want to continue this relationship with you. That's what's happening here. He loves us. He's demonstrated that love for us in the person and work of Christ, and he wants to continue that relationship with us. He wants to cultivate that relationship with us. He's teaching us how to be how to live as free people in this world. This is important. I said this already, but I think it's that important. Notice how this event all plays out. Before the law is ever given to the people, they are first rescued. They're freed from sleep. They're delivered from bondage, redeemed. God is speaking to his people, and they are his people because he has made them his people. They did not earn this position. It was gifted to them by grace. But, but salvation is a gift that keeps on giving because God is not through with us. He does not leave us as he found us, but rather in his grace he chooses to form us and to shape us and to conform us into the image of his son who's described by the Apostle Paul as the very image of the invisible God. See, God doesn't leave us where he found us. He doesn't leave us where he found us. He rescues us, he saves us, and then he is remaking us. It's a continual process that we are gifted with. And the law, through the work of the Spirit, is the means by which he does that in our lives. It's the means by which he does that in our lives. The command that God is about to lay before the people are the terms of the covenant and they are what the people need to obey if they are to continue being this treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. In other words, the liberated are learning to be free. And he's, he's yelling at them, basically, walk in your freedom. Walk in your freedom. That's what we're called to. We're called to walk in our freedom. But the definition of freedom 
needs to be one that, that leads us to become who we were intended to be, not whatever we want to be. And what we were intended to be are images of God, revealing to the world what He is like. But we all know how the story goes. And if you don't, I will tell you. Israel runs after other gods. They become like the nations instead of being distinct, holy, and they fail in their priestly role of being the blessing they were called to be to the world around them. They drop the ball. They drop the ball. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. The truth of the matter is that while the law was good, upholding it proved to be impossible. God made provision for that through the sacrificial system that would take place in the tabernacle and in the temple, but these were temporary fixes, and only the high priest was able to come into the presence of God, and that was only once a year. But it says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. A couple things. The author recounts the scene in Mount Sinai, what we just read in Exodus chapter 19. Blazing fires. Darkness, gloom, a storm, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice that terrified the people. They didn't even want to hear from God. They only wanted to hear from Moses. They were like, no, 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 you talk to him. It's kind of like if, if like, you're, you're upset with your kids, and, like, the older sibling gets it, they read the room, but the younger ones don't. And they're kind of like, no, 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 do not talk to mom and dad. And that's kind of how they felt. Like, no, 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 don't. You, you don't want to you don't go in there. Kids have to learn to read the room. It takes time. <laughs> now this mountain in Mount Sinai, right, it was able to be touched, but to touch it would result in death. And so even Moses was trembling with fear. And so the point of these first couple of verses is that the provision made for the people of God, though good, was incomplete. There was still a barrier there. There was still a barrier there. But the text goes on, verse 22 and following. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heaven in Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal, in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so a couple of things. The mountain that we approach is different. It's a different sort of mountain. It's a heavenly mountain. In fact, the text says the text says that we can approach this mountain. It says that all of us can approach this mountain, and that we can approach the God who is the Judge of all, who resides on this mountain, and and we can approach Jesus, the Mediator of a new covenant, all because of the sprinkled blood that is better than the blood. And so I guess the point that I'm trying to make, the barrier between us and God has been torn down. 
because of Jesus. The new and better Israel. He kept the terms of the covenant. He remained faithful to the law on our behalf. And the sprinkled blood is his blood that was shed on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And so Israel is still the priest that mediates the good news of, of God to the world. Only Israel found its fulfillment in the person and work of King Jesus. The new and better Israel. And it's in him when we put our faith in him, that we receive forgiveness of sins, that the, the fulfillment of the law is applied to us. That's what happens. That's what this book teaches. That's what we believe. That we were far from God, that there was a barrier between us and God. And Israel was supposed to break down that barrier, but they were unable to do so. They kept bumbling the ball. But then Jesus rolls in the second person of the Trinity, and he fulfills everything that Israel was supposed to do. In fact, he spent 40 days in the wilderness, and he did not sin. What was he doing? He was fulfilling those 40 years in the desert that Israel spent where all they did was sin. And he becomes... The pathway by which we might attain eternal life. And he saves us. And then he gives us a law to follow. To love both God and neighbor. That's how Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments. He teaches us, those of us who have bent our knee to him, who have put our faith and trust in him, who have received his grace, who have been saved by his grace, he now says, now go love me and love your neighbor. In fact, you will love me by loving your neighbors. That's how they will know that you love me. And so what I'm trying to say is that the law of God is the path to freedom that no one but Christ was able to try. He did so on our behalf, but there's a difference between those of us who stand on this side of the resurrection to the people of Israel who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. Our salvation, our redemption, our liberation from the clutches of sin and death comes with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Which means that we can now experience our freedom as we allow God to shape and form us into the image of His Son. The Ten Commandments are still in place for us. They're still in place for us. And they still serve as a picture of what humanity ought to look like. In fact, Jesus deepens the meaning of the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of his teachings throughout the Gospels, showing the church what it looks like to live the good life of faith. And just like the people of Israel, we have been rescued and saved by God's amazing grace. As followers of Jesus, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're given the privilege of submitting ourselves to and when we do so in faith, we open ourselves up to the hand of God, allowing us to be shaped and formed into his image. That's good news. That's good news. So as we close, I can't make this point any louder. We are not redeemed, rescued, or saved by submitting ourselves to the Lord. We are redeemed, rescued, and saved by God's grace 
and by his grace we are brought into union with Christ and he takes us along this path of freedom, a path marked by a love for God and a love for neighbor and we walk that path together until the day we meet him face to face. And the hope is that as we travel along this path of grace that the world around us might catch a glimpse of what God is like and turn to him. And so the message of the Ten Commandments wrap up, for those of us who are in Christ, is walk in your freedom. Walk in your freedom by submitting yourselves to the law of Christ. For those of us who don't know Christ, the message of the Ten Commandments is, you have not met this demand, and you need Christ in order to do so. That's good news. Either way you slice it, that's good news. That's what we've been called to. And that's what the three people who are being baptized today have submitted themselves to. They've submitted themselves to Christ. And in obedience, they are going to go into the waters of baptism. Baptism doesn't save them. But it is part of them fulfilling this covenant that God has placed before them. Let me pray. Father, I love you. Thank you for your grace. We thank you for this word that you've given us, these ten words that you've given us. And I pray, Lord, that you would guide our steps, help us to look to you and, and to become more and more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.